Just pray, friends. Lord, thank you that you're with us. Give us yourself. Meet us now, we pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. We love, in our home, we love to watch uh, these, these random, weird, surreal, you know, British comedies, TV British comedies from the 70s, Faulty Towers and all this stuff. And I was once, I once heard an interview with John Cleese. Now, John Cleese, if you're too young to know, was the, the best of these actors in these uh, really hilarious uh, shows that you'll have to ask mom and dad if you can watch and if they, I might be getting myself in trouble a bit here with a few moms and dads. But John Cleese was, you know, was once interviewed about this and someone remarked that, that uh, they said, you know, really, your period was the best period in, um, in British TV comedy. And Cleese, being the, the Brit that he is, he said, well, let's just say it was the least bad. So it was the least bad period in British TV comedy. So Ian had me watching one of these shows one evening. And in that show, the not, not a faulty tower, but another one, this guy goes and he has a time machine. He goes in a time machine and he wants to go back to uh, the period of, of England um, when Shakespeare is, is prominent. But he misses and he lands when Shakespeare is just, you know, trying to write these drafts. And he's walking down this hallway and this guy's coming the other way, scurrying along with this big manuscript that he's clutching, and across it in big letters it says, Hamlet. And the guy who has come in from the modern era goes, hey, wait a minute, is, is that? And the other guy goes, this is my manuscript, I'm trying to get it published. And he goes, are you? The guy goes, William Shakespeare. And he punches him straight in the mouth, and Shakespeare falls out on the floor, and he says, what was that for? And the other guy says, that was for every school kid for the next 400 years. <laughs> but then he gets up, and he hands Shakespeare his pen, and he says, would you sign that for me? And Shakespeare's like, but he signs it. As soon as he signs it, the other guy grabs it, and he rushes back to the time machine, and he escapes. And he comes back into the modern world, and he gets out. And his friends are all there going, how was it? How was it? And he goes, guys, look, look what I've got. I've got the manuscript of Hamlet. And they're all like, huh? And he says, by William Shakespeare. And one of them says, Shakespeare? You mean the guy who invented the ballpoint pen? <laughs> Americans, what can you do? <laughs> you all think getting punched is the funniest part. Jeez. Sometimes on Easter, if I'm honest, I have trouble connecting the dots. Sometimes on Easter, it feels a little bit like one of those British comedies. Is it arbitrary? Is it surreal? How does it connect to me? I mean, it's one person way back in time in another spot, in another language, right? What does it do to me? And what am I if, I, if I buy into it all and I've got eternal life? I mean, not that that's bad, but I mean, what do I do in the meantime? You ever feel these ways? You ever feel these ways? I think it's actually a real question for folks who don't grow up in church. If you don't grow up in church, if you haven't had the Old Testament, if you haven't had the dots connected for you, then really on Easter, you can feel like, okay, I mean, it's good for him, I guess, but... You know, how does this touch us? How does this come to us? How does this touch us? So for me, 
there are three questions that abide on Easter. And I want, to, I want to just, if you'll just stay awake with me a little bit, we're going to walk through those three and see how the resurrection of Jesus and all of Jesus connects to those three. All right, so the first one is, God, why did you choose to intervene in such a messed up world in that way? I mean, it's one guy, and it took a long time to get to him, right? The ancient Near East was just, we, we think what's happening in our world is bad, and it is. It was commonplace. The worst things you're reading, and they're bad, and it matters, but it was commonplace in the ancient Near East. I mean, you talk about an era in human history when might makes right. And we say, okay, God, I mean, an awful lot passed before you got there, right? And then it's, it's one life in a relative backwater of the world, even of that time. And then there's so many things that are passed in the world since and so many justice, injustices unaddressed. Why did you intervene that way? We might say, if it's possible, it's as close as we can come to saying that God had a conundrum. God has a conundrum when the humans sin because God has created He's created out of his own just joy and love and self-giving expression and his desire to make a world. And he's created out of his own choosing. And then, lo and behold, he went and called it good. And he didn't just call it good once. He just keeps on saying it. Wow, look at that. That's good. Wow, look at that. This is so good. Have you seen this? Look what I made. And he keeps calling it good, right? And then into this world that he's made, he introduces these weird critters called humans. Because we're created, we're like clearly on that side of things, but we have souls and we have the desire for eternity in our hearts and we're meant to be filled with the Spirit of God and we're meant to live with God in his life. And that makes us unlike anything else that is. Angels are pure spirit. And so there's some angels who go, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't bowing down to one of them. And so they rebel, and they get cast out of heaven, and then they say, we're going to mess it up. The head of them can only kill, steal, and destroy. He's got no story of his own. He just wants to wreck stuff. And so he sets out to wreck stuff. And then, to make matters worse for God... He's created, he's called it good. He's created these creatures, us, in his image. And then we've gone and made a mess of things. And that just makes things worse for God. I mean, God's got, if you will, a bit of a conundrum, as close to a conundrum as we could ever say. How's he going to work this thing out? If God says zap and just zaps it back into right, then Satan wins, right? You with me? Because then that voice in your head that voice in your head that says to you, oh, come on now. You're not any good at that. You know you're an idiot. Oh, come on. Look at them. They're better than you. You shouldn't have done that, by the way. That was really stupid. Your voice in your head, and everybody's got it, that tells you that is amplified in the Satan a million times over about the whole idea of creating in the first place. The Satan means basically the cynic. And the Satan who's forever saying to God, look what they did now. 
<laughs> Those people in your image. That is so stupid. Why did you ever do that? I told you that wouldn't work. That's the game. That is the cosmic game. God has a conundrum. How is he going to work this thing out in a way that honors his character, respects our dignity, and affirms the goodness of his creation? He does it. He's genius. And he loves. And so he does it. He chooses a people and he works through these people and through these people he makes a line through whom he will eventually, when the time is mysteriously right, enter into human history. And he will walk about bearing the image of God fully and wholly and he will voluntarily, driven by love, go to the cross and die, and therefore death will have no right to hold him because he didn't sin, he went voluntarily, he didn't deserve it, and he'll come back, and when he comes back, then pushes open the possibility of everything being healed and restored and redeemed and made new with God's character honored with the dignity of those created in his image honored, and with his repeated affirmation, this creating thing was a good idea after all, staying in the mix. So the earliest followers of Jesus, the earliest followers of Jesus, they just went around the world of their day saying, this is amazing because a human being has beaten death. It was that simple. I mean, that is the point of the spear for what they said to people. A human being has beaten death. You've you, you got to hear about this guy. A human being has beaten death. And that is how God enters and why it takes so long. So then I go, okay, I can, I can handle that. I mean, God, God's got a higher threshold of pain than I do, but, you know, he knows what he's doing. He made it in the first place. I can live with that. The next question that comes to me then is, what do I do with this? What about now? I mean, that's, you know, pretty abstracted stuff, sort of. Where does this meet me in life in a regular day, a regular way? The second thing that the followers of Jesus went around saying, they said, there's this man who's beaten death, and because he's beaten death, he is now Lord. Now, when we hear Lord, we think of church. Unless you're on vacation in England and you're around Westminster and you're thinking, oh, they have a house of lords, then we think of religious language, right? When they said in their day, Jesus is Lord, it was not religious language. It was directly subversive of the Caesar. Saying that was loaded. Because you were supposed to, if you were a good Roman, you were supposed to walk past the little incense altars to Caesar, grab a bit of, of incense, throw it in, and say, Caesar is Lord. Literally the same words. And they believed that Caesar was God. Somewhere in between how we think of God and how we think of like a celebrity, right? Like think of the most amazing athlete in your favorite sport. You know, he's like a God. I mean, how does he do that? How does she do? That's incredible, right? Wouldn't it be amazing to be so gifted? Wouldn't it be amazing? What an incredible person. And the Caesar was somewhere, 
you know, a mix of God, God, and this, you know, the way life's supposed to be, lifestyles of the rich and famous kind of thing. But they go around saying no. They go around saying, you can keep him. We don't want him. They go around saying, Jesus is Lord. Because yes, the cross culminates, and yes, the resurrection busts open a new life, but Jesus' whole life matters as well. The way he relates to the creation around him, the way he relates to all people, image bearers of God, especially the ones who were hurting the most, the way he relates to women, intimate but not creepy, intimate but holy, the way he relates to God, his father, he's connected naturally. And it seems to work, and he listens to his father, and he does what his father wants him to do, and he submits to the father. And he holds on to the hope of Sabbath, but for him it's a beautiful thing that gives us life. And it points to the fact that we are meant for more. These things, these things are amazing, are they not? How many people here remember life before these things? I mean, do you really? <laughs> these things are amazing. But these things and some other things have sort of radically, if you will, flattened out the world, right? And now what do we care about the most? Who sees? Who knows? Will they like it? How much time in the past, I don't know, you pick it, number of years, have you been disconnected and open only here? Let's just, let's just imagine that the human has, like, you know, this much connectivity to you. Well, if you're burning up this much of it on this, you don't have a lot left, do you? Right? One of the reasons, one of, not all, one of the reasons that we're anxious and depressed and worried and stressed all the time is because we've radically flattened things out. Jesus lives an amazing life that shows us what it is to be a human being. And he sets us on the path to living in that life in a new self ourselves. But he also reminds us in his resurrection appearances when he was still himself, but he was also radiantly glorious at the same time. He reminds us that while this life matters profoundly, we are meant for more. And this world will be both ended and renewed in some mysterious way. And heaven and earth will be joined together. And we will have bodies, new bodies. And we will be ourselves, but we will be different. And we're meant for glory. We're meant for that glory. Knowing that we're meant for that glory just helps us deal with today. Jesus' life profoundly matters. He gives us a model. He shows us what it is to be a human being. He was called the human being. He's called the son of man, which in their world basically means he's the human being. That's his favorite name for himself. So it's a both and. But also we're meant for glory and we live to it. We live towards it. So what do we, what do, we do with this? more like, okay, I buy in, God's a genius, he worked it out, I buy in, Jesus is the model, 
and he also has opened up glory for me. That connects a little more dots for me. Okay, I got to go to tomorrow, right? So I got to go to tomorrow. What do I do going to tomorrow? The third thing that the earliest followers of Jesus said that we only know as religious language, but that they did not know as religious language, was they said it was gospel. Gospel in the Roman world was a technical term of the empire. For when there was a rebellion of the empire, they would send, you know, the general of the north. I mean, you know, watch, uh, watch Gladiator, that, that movie, that first scene. That first scene is historically so well done. They've sent the general to the north to put down the barbaric German hordes. And ooh, it's painful and scary to watch, but it's really, you know, accurately well done. And that's what they do. And then when the victory had been secured for the empire, they would send back the gospel to Rome that all was well. Jesus has returned and he said, no, I'm sorry, I made it. It's for me. It is good. Dadgummit, Satan, go away. I'm going to claim my realm. I'm going to be honored as king. So gospel yourself. Gospel your soul. And that means when Jesus says, I love you, you are loved. When Jesus says, I forgive you, if the king pardons you, you have been pardoned, right? Amen? So breathe, breathe. I'm forgiven. I have a new start. Gospel your soul. Fill your soul with beauty that you don't put on social media. I was working on this sermon the other day, and I was out in the barn at my stand-up desk, and I get to this point, and a little bee, like a little honeybee, starts walking across my page. And I, and I could see it really clearly. It was really cool. Like he's so fuzzy, and he stopped, and he's got his back legs, and he's like rubbing them on each other. It was awesome. And so my first instinct is like, this thing has three cameras. I can get right. And I said, no, no. Because sometimes Jesus is saying, hey, this is just for me and you. I sent this just for me and you. Let's just enjoy this together, just the two of us. We don't need to put that one on Instagram. Beauty, gospel your soul, good news your soul. Reclaim your soul for what it's meant to be. Wonder. Go get some wonder of beauty in your life and let it make you sit there and wonder. And wonder. Humility. The soul needs humility. The soul needs goodness. I don't mean moralistic goodness. I mean simple, for its own sake, organic goodness. So I'm winding down. Stay with me. Thursday night. Thursday night, we're in here for Monday, Thursday. And we've got four people up here, and Wendy is, um, she's taken off the fancy thing. She's put on an old apron, and she's washing feet. We have Brian Carlson and some of the folks from Antioch here, part of the North Shore Gospel Partnership. Brian had reached out and said, hey, can, can we come join you guys? I'm like, Brian, I'm, I'm so honored and humbled. We should have been asking you, you know, and they came and they joined us. So this foot washing is going on, and 
You get one of those classic, wonderful moments where both mom and dad are looking at what the other child's doing, and one of them sneaks out of the pew and runs up the aisle, and she's just completely entranced. And if you were there Thursday night, and you didn't cry, you need soul help. <laughs> it, was, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. It was just goodness. She felt the goodness in what Wendy was doing. And she was curious, what is this thing where people are sitting on chairs and they've got their shoes off in front of everybody and she's going from one to the other. What is this? And she just came up and dad pops up. Oh my word, you know, these people are liturgical and here she's done this thing. And she's run up and dad's coming up and we say, no, no. And Wendy took her on her lap. She said, would you like to have your feet washed? You, you can kill me and send me to heaven on that moment. I, I, am, I am right there with Simeon. Lord, you, know, it's been, you can have me now. It's been fulfilled. That's what church is meant to be. That's what the people of God are meant to be. Gospel your own soul with simple goodness. And let your soul live. And let your soul breathe. And believe, believe that the story doesn't end. I'm so glad they're doing whatever they're doing. That's so good. That's so good. I told you, don't you wish you could do that? I just wish I could do that. I couldn't do that if, if I mean, I, just, I can't, but I wish I could. I need to be able to do that. Let's pray, friends. just invite you to see the resurrected Jesus in front of you himself wounded but alive and glorious at the same time and just hear him say I know you I dreamed you up I did it for you I forgive you. I love you. And I'm so excited about who you will be. Now, friends, let us expand our prayers and pray for the church and for the world.